0: I've said it before, and I'm always happy to say it again, James Taylor is one of my all-time favorites. He sold well over 100 million albums during his four-decade career. Ah, staggering, isn't it? Poetic songs like Sweet Baby James, Fire and Rain, Carolina In My Mind have made James Taylor one of the most influential singer-songwriters of all time. From the very start, James attracted some of the biggest talents in music. He got his first break by impressing the Beatles. Can you imagine having your music impress the Beatles? He was the first artist they signed to their label, Apple Records. And as James's career took off, his circle grew to include other greats like Joni Mitchell and of course, Carole King. And it wasn't long before James Taylor distinguished himself as one of the key voices of his generation. Despite his success, James was caught in an 18 year drug addiction and as a young man even spent time in a psychiatric hospital. So many of his songs ooze beauty and romance, but beneath that beauty, there was often a hidden darkness. Everybody has a story and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with James Taylor.
1: I wrote a song called Jump Up Behind Me, which was, uh, you know, it's sort of a romantic fantasy, but the thing that it was based on was this time when my dad rescued me. My dad is gone now. He was raised in North Carolina and went to Harvard Medical School where he was head of his class for four years. Then he was chief resident at MGH. He was was really uh, burning up. My dad was a really smart and capable guy, but I have this memory of my dad rescuing me from New York in the summer of 67, late summer. I had been spending a better part of a year in, in New York with uh, my band, The Flying Machine. We thought we got a record contract, but it turned out the money dried up and, and we didn't record. Our bass player quit, and by the middle of the summer of 67, I, I had a serious uh, drug habit. I was living in an apartment in, a, in the Upper West Side, which in those days, now, now it's a, a beautiful high-end community, but in those days was a, like a battleground. And I used to lie in bed every night and listen to the windows break of apartments being broken into and you know fights on the street and stuff. So it was a rough neighborhood. I could have disappeared down the, down the drain really quite easily at that point just takes a, a week or two in the wrong, at the wrong place and suddenly very bad things can happen. So I was just stranded in New York. I was strung out. I don't know if I called home or if, if home called me, but my dad got on the phone and he said, how are you doing, James? I said, well, I don't know, not so good, dad. He said, stay right there. Do not leave. Don't go out of that apartment until you see me. got his wallet. He walked out of the house, got in the car, started it, and drove up to New York, which was a long drive, a long way to come. And I did. I stayed put where I was. About 13 hours later, he showed up with the family station wagon down on the street, and he picked me up and took me home. And I recovered for about, oh, six months or so until I was ready to start the next chapter. But that he knew that I was in trouble, and that he dropped everything, and he himself came. You know, he didn't send somebody. He knew that every minute I could be out on the street, and I could be uptown in danger. I'll never forget that. My progress was marked by and depended upon my relationships with a number of people, some of them old friendships, some of them new. When I was 18, I had uh, opted out of college. I'd spent most of my college fund, and I talked my folks into to buy me a ticket to London. Like the 1st of January, 1968, I took my guitar. I had all this music in my head. didn't have any idea of what I was going to do or, or how I was going to proceed. I just wanted to play music and travel. So I found myself in London, but I met people who really got enthusiastic about my music. These were... People who worked in the arts encouraged me to make a demo tape. I called my friend Danny Korchmar, and cooch uh, 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 we called him, and still do. Cooch was a key person in my life in terms of connecting with a lot of people. And he had toured a year with Peter Asher of Peter and Gordon during the British invasion. And Cooch gave me his number. So I took my demo and I got it to uh, Peter Asher. And uh, Peter, as luck would have it, had just signed on as A&R person for Apple Records, the Beatles' brand new record label. And it was his job to find people to sign to the label. And uh, he heard my demo. He arranged an audition with uh, Paul McCartney and George Harrison. Paul said to Peter, uh, this is great. Uh, you feel like producing a record for this guy? And Peter said, yeah, I'll produce him. And Peter Asher also was a a key person. Peter was my manager, is my dear friend, and we sort of learned how to produce together. And that was it. That was my big break. And it came after about three years of trying hard to get started. It did seem like an impossible dream. I was a huge Beatles fan. I emulated and uh, stole from the Beatles. I copied them as much as I could, you know. It was remarkable, just a dream come true, really was. The Beatles were making the White Album at that time, that spring. They took a studio, booked a studio, and I used the time that they weren't using to record my album. Uh, Paul and George uh, contributed on a couple of tracks and couldn't possibly have found a better big showbiz break for a musician like me. It was great. I went back to the States, and Cooch was out on the West Coast. He introduced me to Carol King. That was an important next step. Around that time, I met Joni Mitchell. She and I were together for a year, and I found myself really out of the box, in the limelight, beyond my wildest dreams, you know, like in 1970, 71. I had a number one album, Sweet Baby James. I was on the cover of Time magazine. I was a big deal for a few years there. It was great. I saw myself as a working musician, as a person with a job and a, a skill set and a craft and a series of relationships that were important to me, and that has helped me sustain what I do. So part of it is key friendships along the way and people who helped, like a, a musical community, They have a huge influence on my process. I've written 170 songs, something like that. In many ways, I look at it as having written 25 songs over and over again. There are themes that I keep getting drawn back to. I think that happens in general with songwriters, that they're always rewriting a song that they've heard before. You can't predict where the song will take you and how it'll end up, but I really love it when a song comes through and I put a puzzle together and, and it, it gets on its feet and works. It's, a, it's really exciting to play those things. I came from a musical family. My mother had studied singing for a while, and both my folks really uh, have always loved music. We grew up in North Carolina, and there was a lot of empty time to listen to music and to think about it. And, the family record collection, was a real treasure. My mother uh, encouraged all of us to uh, pick up an instrument, and I played the cello for about four years until I swapped over to the guitar. I pleaded, I begged, I got a guitar for my 12th birthday and essentially never, never looked back. I'd had very few lessons on the guitar. I mostly just sort of found my own way of playing it. I actually constructed chords. I'd play the bass note to a chord because I knew that was what I needed next if I was trying to sing a song, and then I just would go through the strings of the guitar, putting my fingers wherever it, it seemed to work with that bass note. As a result, my D chord, my A chord, my G chord, my E, all of them are a little bit backwards. That's because I invented my own chords, but in those days the amount of time that you had to consider things, experiment with different tunings without distraction, was a lot, lot longer. And it's very easy today to be distracted. It's hard. You actually have to really defend your time in order to have a, a, a long thought. Once I got deep into the guitar, I would play anything that came to mind. It started as self-expression, saying things that I wanted to hear said playing music that I wanted to hear. And I've always felt as though it was an unconscious process that I was, rather than writing the songs, I'm just the first person to hear them. When writing a song, I need quiet. I need those three days of boring, nothing happening before I start to hear them. You get these pieces, and then you're going to have to sequester yourself somewhere, find a quiet place, and start to push them around. I think in order to create, artistic people need to be alone. They need to have time to themselves. Isolation is key. Now, some of that means that you need to be, if you have to be lonely in order to be free, you know, learn how to tolerate a little bit of loneliness. It's hard, but you're strong. You can do it. There's a mysterious sort of darkness in my family tree. People argue about substance abuse and whether or not addiction is... Genetically predisposed, and I think it probably is, but there's definitely that gene in my family. Whether it's nature or nurture, we tend to be addicted. I lost my older brother to it. Alcoholism killed him, just literally killed him. I think to a certain extent, we're also subject to depression. That's a, a double edged thing. It's not entirely negative in dealing with it, in contemplating it, and trying to get r- relief. I think a lot of art is generated. But there was this period of time when my family kind of came off the rails. My dad's drinking became an issue. He was highly functional, and he certainly was a a brilliant man, but sort of haunted, and his drinking, you know, alcohol was a problem for him. So I think that sort of came to a, a head, came to a crisis in the late 60s, my folks broke up. I don't know what sent the uh, the Taylor siblings into such a tailspin, but three of us ended up in psychiatric hospital. It was at a time in the popular culture when things were really coming unglued. It was in the late '60s, early '70s. It was a very exciting time and very unsettling. And the drummer from my band, the Flying Machine, was a heroin addict, and it was a matter of time before I. I got my first taste and I was gone. As soon as I was introduced to opiates, I was gone. So the main thing I would say about it is avoid an addiction. And that means if you like something an awful lot and it's an addictive substance, run like hell. If you love it, let that be the last time you ever touched it. I generally say that if you live and learn unless you're getting high every day and then you just have the same experience over and over and over again, and eventually it it doesn't work anymore and you find yourself
0: having missed out on a lot of your life so it's a criminal waste of time is what it is yeah. james lost many years to his addiction during the 1970s james was married to singer carly simon they had two children ben and sally the couple divorced in 1983 It wasn't until years after James Taylor got clean and sober that he says he was ready and present enough to be in love again. He met Kim Smedvik. They were married in 2001 and are now raising twin boys, Henry and Rufus. James views his relationship with Kim through the eyes of a poet.
1: I met Kim in Boston in 1993. She was working for the Boston Symphony. I was playing with the Boston Pops, and I noticed her right away, and something uh, definitely caught my eye, and I called her back a couple of times. Finally, in 95, she agreed to go on a date with me, and uh, it was really as though we had both known each other before, had both been close and intimate before, in another lifetime, and we had been waiting for for each other, looking for each other in this life. I've written a song about it called uh, You and I Again. I've written a number of songs to Kim and about Kim, but I think we look for a partner. And it took me a long time to be settled enough and responsible enough in a way, but, but really just present enough to be a decent husband, a decent partner. To be able to share your life with somebody else, it's the way I think biologically we are set up to pair off, to raise children, that really cements our bond. It's so satisfying uh, spiritually. So much is said about love and about this romantic notion of what it is, like like it's a state that we want to be in, but really it's a relationship that's going to develop over a long period of time. I've known people who are addicted to falling in love and would just do that over and over again, got pretty good at it too. But the point for me is that I was looking for my partner in this life. And what a wonderful thing to, to find that. What a great thing to be able to share your life and not live it alone. The first verse of Fire and Rain is about a girlfriend who took her own life in New York in, in 1968 I knew after the first verse and chorus what the song was because it was that simple a song. Writing songs, you just follow the clues. You follow the, the breadcrumbs. It is an unconscious process, and it's hard to describe it with language. I have a spiritual need, and music satisfies a lot of that, and it's not a mistake that, that music lived in the church forever and ever. The church knew about the spiritual appeal of uh, being in music. The way I see it is as wanting to feel the beneficence of that which created us and out of which we, we emerged. So I do uh, write songs that are spirituals. That's definitely a, a major theme of mine over and over again. I think that what happened to me was that I was raised essentially by atheists, and I was never given a sense of a religious a spiritual practice, so you have to get that early on. And if you weren't supplied with a mechanism that satisfies it, then you have to try to, to assemble one, to come up with one. And that's what I do. I've said a few times that 90% of show business is how you look when you're nervous. I started playing music in the early 60s, and uh, folk music was a big deal. Folk music was so accessible. And all you had to do was pretend you could do it, and maybe you could. And the same thing went for writing songs. You say, I'm going to write a song like that. Then it takes its own direction, and surprise, you know, you've you've got something. So it was easy to play music with just guitar and voice. And there were also places you could get up in front of an audience and test yourself, you know, try it out and see if you uh, had any effect on people and uh, sort of develop a little performance skill, you know. Open mics at coffee houses and community centers and church basements. Those were good training, really important, and we need more of those. We definitely need more of those opportunities for people to play to just a handful of people. Just get your stuff out in front of an audience. It was really important to me. It used to be that you had to have a a recording contract to sort of continue your career to the next level, but. Nowadays, uh, you can find a way to record your music, and that's great. You put it down, you can listen back to it, you can improve it, continue to work on it. It used to be hard to open the door. Now the door's wide open, but once you walk through it, there's a million other people in the room. Uh, It's a different problem now, uh, getting yourself heard. I think it's partially also a matter of uh, risking yourself and allowing yourself to be vulnerable and to deal with failure when it happens without having that close you down. I was addicted to opiates for roughly 18 years. In 1983, I, I finally got sober and serious about it and did what I had to do to, to clean up. It is a self-diagnosed uh, disease. Uh, the, the addict uh, himself has to want to quit. To be in the position where you, you have to quit but you don't want to is much, much worse than you want to quit but you don't know how to. I guess the best advice is to say as soon as you can figure it out that you're suffering from this condition, this disease, and then uh, uh, get help. Because the sooner you get over it, uh, the sooner you get on with your life. The uh, 12-step programs are the best way we've discovered so far for recovering from addiction. But the thing that you're going to, that's actually going to give you your body and your nervous system back is physical exercise. I can't stress it enough. Uh, that's how I got my body and my nervous system back. You have to go to boot camp. And it makes you feel better. It's the only thing that does. And eventually that sort of just scours the, the devil out of you. So that's, that's the best practical advice I can give is, is uh, sweat it out. Being a parent is a huge part of my life. I guess probably the most important thing. I have four children, two grown children, who are both of them pushing 40. When Sally was 10 and Ben was 7, I sobered up and got clean, and there's something about uh, establishing yourself in life and reaching a certain point of stability that, that is much more uh, conducive to being there for your kids, and uh, you're not a kid yourself, you're not out there uh, experimenting, you, you figured it out, and it's time to uh, focus on your family. So I definitely feel remorse and uh, shame for the period of time when I was addicted. That's a confusing thing to have a a parent or anyone that you love involved with this invisible monster. But in spite of that, and in spite of the fact that the marriage ended, they have turned out so, I can't take credit for it, but they've turned out so wonderfully. And now, Kim and I have twin boys 14 years old, and there's something very much in common with how I perform and how I parent. And that's that you have to be there. You simply have to be present for them. And if you're there and sober, which is just another way of saying there, eventually discipline follows, everything follows. They see who you are, they see how you react, they see how you treat other people. That's as simple as it gets. I think people overthink being parents. All you have to do is be there for them, be with them as much as you can. Now, that's the struggle for me is how to balance home life with with time on the road. I think my kids understand and have understood that it's what I do and um, I have to do it. But I think they understand that uh, and that I miss them and love them, but that I also love my work. So that's really it in a nutshell. You need to be the person you want your children to be. There are lots of clichés about music. Music is the universal language. I think that's actually true. Generally speaking, I think that when a person hears a major seventh chord, they have a certain relationship emotionally to that chord. You hear a song and you weep. You know, I mean that's happened to me uh, n- n- numerous times before. It's not something you decide on like like language is. I mean when you. When you use language and have a conversation or try to make a point, it's up for grabs, it's analytical, it's a cerebral process, but music either connects with you or it doesn't. You feel it, and um, because because it is uh, a true thing in the world. It's physics. An octave is twice the frequency of the note of the octave below it. That is a physical reality. So there's something empirically true about music. And that means that it's a a relief from the isolation of life, because humans live in their own assembled world that's in their brain, and it's an isolation. It's a prison. It separates us, and we want to give that the slip and fall back into what really is. Music allows us to do that. I remember when we were on the road during 9-11, those concerts that we did in that next month. It was deep. There were some deep moments there. Yeah. Because it's musical and emotional, it's kind of a bonding, it's kind of a community thing that happens at a concert. Having a common experience with like-minded people, you know, it's a real thing that happens. And it is transcendent. It is transcendent, and it can be quite deep.
0: Transcendent is also the word to describe James Taylor's enormous talent. He's performed everywhere, from Carnegie Hall to the White House, and he's been inducted into both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the Songwriters Hall of Fame. Even today, after all he's accomplished, James Taylor still works at the craft of songwriting. He treats it like a job, still tapping into the intuitive power of music and all of the emotions that can only be best expressed in song. And he does it like no one else. James Taylor, you are a master in how sweet it is.
1: I've been around for a surprising amount of time. I mean, one of the things that I would never have guessed uh, at the age of 17 is that at the age of 67, I'd still be alive at all, but. I just never thought of the, of the future at all. I, I have a song that says, uh, only live until the end of the week. That's really how I lived for a long, long time. The thing that's allowed me to continue is that I've had a, a very good degree of success. You know, I'm not the world's number one male pop star. I never believed that hype. You know, I wanted to be successful, but I, I really distrusted it, always. I focus on the fact that I'm a performing musician, a member of a musical community, and I'm a a songwriter who records his own stuff. Just to focus on the job that I have and doing it well and to focus on my recovery, those things um, have, have sort of kept things sane for me. As time goes by, I just see every day more and more how unbelievably lucky I was, you know, to be alive at all to have had the, the, the breaks I've had, to have met the people I met, and uh, to have uh, evolved this uh, relationship with an audience that, that sustains me in the world and with whom I have a common purpose. You know, I, f- I feel as though we're joined by something. It's great to have a, a life in
0: music, you know, to get out there, connect with other people. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast.